Hey, um, go ahead and pull out the Bible that's there in front of you. We're going to be reading Genesis 1-1, so that's probably page 1 or 2 in the Pew Bible. Um, and Clara Nightum is going to read for us. Let's give a hearing to God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth, across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing with which the waters teem, according to their kinds, and every winged bird, according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number, and fill the water in the seas, and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground 
according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Thanks, Clara. Two quick things before we get going. Um, first is, if you're for some reason you're not going to be in a small group, um, we're going to be doing um, this from now till the end of the year. It's all of a half inch thick, and if you're not going to be in a small group, I'd still get it and do it as like a personal, private devotional time, and then you'll be kind of on the same page as everybody else. I think it'll be really helpful. And, um, we're using this because I think it's a pretty good curriculum. So um, I've been using it to prep my sermons and stuff and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Second is, if you're a small group leader, especially this week because we're doing Genesis 1, you may be like, oh my gosh, I don't know, I can't know if I can take everybody through the whole Bible. I mean, I, 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 I'm good at taking canned peaches and putting them in bowls. Are you sure? And um, my, my response to that is, listen, you, for, one, for one, you need to know that um, s- small group leadership is really important to the health and life of this church. Um, the, your ministry of just presence and trying to create an environment in which people can learn about each other and apply what they're learning to their own lives and to the lives of each other is really important. Okay, you, you're doing a really important thing. The second thing is, the reason we have 50-minute sermons and classes during both services is so that we can get the kind of instruction people require in the culture in which we live um, without having to depend on small group leaders for that. So if all you're good at in small group is to answer questions by saying, I don't know, and you're, you're modeling godly humility for people, the people in your small group are going to be 50 miles down the road. So don't worry about that, okay? All right, that's all there is about, I have about that. So um, let's start out with one of my failures. Um, one of my failures in the last three months is not taking my 10-year-old daughter to a UW women's basketball game or a Middleton high school girls, but apparently they're like eighth in the state, so you probably can learn as much going to that game. And the, the reason why that's a failure of mine, and I put, it, I put it in my schedule to plan to go to a game with her, and it just, anyway. 
Um, here's why it's a failure. Because for the last two or three months, I've been coaching her fourth and fifth grade girls basketball team. Now, if you don't know how that goes, fourth and fifth grade is when girls, if, they, if they're not playing something else in school, they first start playing basketball. So you have to, you start out with, you know, the Vince Lombardi, this is a ball, right? And so, and most, most girls in our culture, I don't know if you know this, but they don't grow up watching a lot of basketball. And so they have, you know, there's not yet a Barbie that can dribble. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, these girls come in, and like, my daughter's just like them. She just, I mean, she's never, she'd never dribbled a basketball before. She just knew some of the cool girls in the grade older than her were playing basketball. This was an, an option for her, and so she wanted to do it. And so I'm coaching her and these other girls, and I'm trying to teach them basketball stuff. And I know basketball stuff. I'm like, this is how you box out. This is how you defend. This is how you shoot. This is how you ball. And we keep, we keep teaching them stuff. And then they get in games, and they lose 47 to 4, you know? And you're kind of like, okay, awesome. Um, and, and one of the things that, you know, I realized as we kind of got along the line is she's never seen basketball happen in her life. She's never actually seen, because even if you show up to the game before your kid plays early, all you're doing is watching another game of terrible basketball. That's all you're doing, right? You know, you know it's just every place of travel, you know? And so your girl comes and she's like, oh, that's a basketball. And you're like, baby, that's not what basketball is. They're as bad as you are. Don't look at them, right? <laughs> What she actually needs is, she actually, we need, I need to drive her down to wherever the girls play, and I need to chuck out the money, and I, we need to sit there and watch some women who know how to play basketball play basketball. So, because, here's the problem, if I teach her how to box out, she doesn't really get when and how to do that, or why it's so important. She doesn't really know how to defend when the, when you're not, just the ball's not right there. She doesn't know how to see stuff. She doesn't see why. But I can take her to a game and I can say, okay, listen, watch that girl the whole thing. The whole time you're down there. Don't watch the ball. Watch that one girl and watch what she does. And she can watch her come here and open up and come over here and then box out and then break out and all. And as you see what... Because she needs... And here's, here's the problem. Here's why it was my fault my daughter didn't progress as much as she could have this year. Because I never let her see the picture big enough so she could deal with the... put the little things in the right place. I didn't do it. I just didn't do it. And so I spent a season teaching her and a bunch of other girls lots of little things about basketball that they didn't understand the big picture well enough to put them together. She just didn't see big enough to think small enough to succeed. It didn't happen. So, and, and here's why that matters for this series. It's very easy to come to church over and over and over again and get pieces Here's four things to build a better marriage. Here's four things to cope with a worse divorce. Here's five steps about how to have better behaved children. Here's nine things you can do to have better workplace relationships. Here's, right? And it's like you just keep, here's how to, here's three ways to be anxiety. Here's, and you end up kind of getting, like they get piled in here and you're kind of like, okay, okay, okay. And you don't have a box to put them in. And you feel like the Christian life is like being a kid carrying around too many books just waiting for some bully to knock them out of your hands, right? Or for you to trip over something. I mean, that's what—and you kind of feel like, okay, am I doing Christianity? Am I doing Christianity? I am pretty kind of, okay, good, yeah, am I—oh, I get to lead too now. Oh, fantastic. All right, so it just doesn't—people don't feel free. And one of the reasons why I think that's the case is— what we do in church so much is like, here's how you box out. Here's how you defend. Here's how you do this. And we've never watched a game of basketball. We, we read the Bible in little pieces and little portions. We reach whatever we can get through, you know, in three minutes or whatever. And 
we don't even read the Old Testament, and, and, and we never see big enough to think small enough about how the Christian faith is actually lived out. We just don't see Jesus for what he is. We certainly don't see him on every page of the Bible, and we don't see him from beginning, in it, beginning to end. And um, that's one of the reasons why, if you've ever been to Explore here at High Point, you've seen this slide. And the middle one, so our ministry model is connect, grow, serve. That's what we try to do. That's all we're doing when we come here together is we're trying to connect with God and other people. We're trying to grow, and we're trying to serve. And we believe if we do those things together, that is the, those are the most light things we can do together that will most likely produce real spiritual growth in us and real sp- spiritual vitality between us. And under grow, we've, we've nailed two things. It's not just grow in every way possible. It's to understand the gospel and to know the Bible. Because most of us know a little bit about the gospel, but we don't really know what it means to know and be known by God through Christ. We don't know Jesus very well. And secondly, we're around the Bible a good bit, but we don't know it. Some people either, we've read, we've read lots of bits of it to get pieces that don't all go together, or the Bible is like— you know one of those commercials where there's like some inanimate object that like talks at somebody like, you know, and the Bible becomes like one of those little books to be like, you should be reading me. You should be reading me. Aren't you a Christian? You should be reading me. And it's kind of like, oh, guilt book. You know, and you might have tried to read it and started in Genesis. And by the time you got to Leviticus, you're like, they're in the desert and so am I. Good heavens. This is boring. And you just, you know, it's hard to figure out what to do. And so it's, it's sometimes it's hard to engage with the Bible, but and it's not sometimes until you see how the Bible fits together that you begin to realize that this thing Jesus is saying over here in John, it's straight out of Leviticus. And if you knew that, it would all come together. The main point of this whole series, if you only learn one thing for the next year, okay, you're ready for cliff notes, right? If you only learn one thing for the next year, it's this, that the whole Bible is about Jesus and the gospel, the whole Bible. From Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, it's the whole thing is about Jesus, and Jesus is the interpretive principle for the whole Bible. Jesus is the interpretive principle for the whole Bible. Um, that it, and, and what I, here's what that means. Jesus is more than the fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecies. See, some of us think the, the thing that the Old Testament is really good for, besides giving us a little historical background, is that there are some prophecies about Jesus that happened a long time before he was born that he could never have controlled. And so when he fulfills those things, then you can use those against your atheist friends and co-workers, you know, to be like, well, don't you know? And so, for example, in the book of Zechariah, the name—Jesus' the, the, name is prophesied. Right? It's prophesied that the one who is the branch, which is the messianic line, will be called Joshua, right? In Hebrew, Joshua, when you switch it over into, into Aramaic and then the Greek, it becomes Iesu, which we translate in English as Jesus, right? So Jesus' name is Joshua, which is the name of the branch, the Messiah. This is hundreds of years before Jesus is born, and that's pretty cool, right? And for some of us, we just wish the Bible was just full of more of those in the Old Testament. Wouldn't it be great if the Old Testament had like 3,000 of those? Just like, boom, boom, boom. It's like the book of prophecies. It's like every proverb— Boom, it's, it's, it's one of these. But that's, that's not what the Bible is like. And yet, Jesus claims that he is the interpretive principle of the whole thing. Passages that you would never hardly dream that Jesus is in any way associated with. He claims to be the interpretive key to rightfully understanding that. And for a lot of things in life, um, having the interpretive key is really important. 
if you want to understand what's going on. A few months ago, my, my brother works in a college ministry at Univ University of California, Davis, and he put together a man-packing trip. And so they, they got like 10 or 12 guys together to hike in the Sierras. There were 12 guys and like 29 knives and a crossbow. I mean, it was a man, it was a man trip. And so they went out and they hiked. And, and, after, and my brother was the only non-college student. And so they're out there hiking and he realizes they're saying a bunch of stuff and he doesn't know what they're talking about. Right? And my brother's like at the deep end of the gene pool in my family. He's a really smart guy. And, he, and then he realized after a while that the reason he didn't know exactly what they're talking about is because they communicate like most younger people communicate, which is, of course, in movie quotations, right? It's movie, movie quotations are, are the Old Testament for 20-year-olds, right? And so— they quote a film, and you're supposed to have watched it, and then so you know the Old Testament background, you laugh again at the scene you saw that was funny, and then it brings relevance and meaning in the present, right? It's a, it's a multiple trajectory hermeneutic is what they're all using, right? And so my brother was kind of frustrated by that because he watches a lot of films so he can stay in the cultural world of undergraduates. And so this is really frustrating for him. And he realized they're quoting all these films, and he doesn't, hadn't heard, he didn't recognize any of this. And so finally he realizes— they're, all the quotations are from the same movie. Right? And he, he really—I mean, he's just like, wow, this is a really quotable movie. Like, every single—and then it, it, and it finally culminated in this quotation. Where do you want to go? I'll tell you where. Someplace warm. A place where the beer flows like wine. Where beautiful women instinctively flock like the salmon of Capistrano. I'm talking about a little place called Aspen. Right? The movie is Dumb and Dumber. Right? For those of us with ungodly movie habits. Um, and the—see, if you've seen that movie, every quote makes sense. Every quote, its application, how it's used, why it's funny, it all makes sense. Just clicks, just like that. You have the interpretive key. If you don't have the interpretive key, you're perpetually mystified by what on earth these people are talking about and what are the salmon of Capistrano. I'm like, honestly, right? And everybody else is laughing hysterically. Because one group of people has the interpretive key, and the other group of people do not. And to understand the Bible, to understand Christian faith, to see big enough so you can act small enough, to have a Christian life that is actually effectual and fulfilling, to feel like you're living a faith that isn't just carrying around a bunch of things you don't have a box for, but to feel like you, you know what you're called to, who you are, that you're freed by the gospel, and you can live within the story God is telling— You've got to have the interpretive key. You've got to learn to see the gospel through the Bible. You've got to learn to see Jesus on every page. Or the whole thing is going to be on some level mystifying. And you're going to think it's because Christianity doesn't work. There's a number of passages in the New Testament where Jesus claims this for himself. In this passage in Matthew 5, 70 to 20, he's, he's offering what's called the Sermon on the Mount, and he knows people are going to attack him as like, oh, you're putting away the Old Testament. You're creating this whole new thing. What, who do you think you are? And he says this. He says, don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. 
Do you see his sense of continuity with the whole Testament? Now that's the weakest of the three examples he gives in the New Testament. The second one is in Luke 24, where he's a bunch of his buddies are walking the seven-mile road between Jerusalem and Emmaus, and they're on their way to Emmaus, and they're really frustrated because Jesus has died. He's risen from the dead, but they don't know it yet. And so these two guys are walking along, talking about all the stuff that happens that they just don't understand, and this other guy shows up, but they don't recognize him, but he's the risen Jesus. But Jesus has kind of veiled that reality from them. And so they have this conversation. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, meaning Jesus, this new guy shows up who they don't know who he is, are you the only person, only visitor to Jerusalem that does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? He asked coyly. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. They came and told us what, that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He, this is Jesus now, said to them, How foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what he, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In all the prophets, in all the scriptures concerning himself. Right? So th these are guys that know their Old Testament, right? These people know their Old Testament. They know there's going to be a Redeemer of Israel. They know a bunch of stuff about the Old Testament. And so Jesus comes, lives, died, he's crucified, he's raised. And, and when, the minute the guy who they think is the Messiah gets killed, they're like, well, I guess it's over. And then what does Jesus say to them? He goes, guys, that was like Act 3. That was like the culmination of the whole thing. Like the whole Bible led up to that. It said explicitly in the Old Testament that the Messiah was going to have to die and suffer before he entered into his glory. Didn't you read Isaiah? Right? And here's the thing about it. It's not just, oh, they missed it. He actually makes fun of them, right? He's, he's essentially arguing that it's obligatory to see this in the Old Testament. They should have seen it. He's saying, you guys are so foolish. Don't you see it's your heart that keeps you from seeing this? There's an emotional problem. You, you're, you're resistant to it emotionally, and so intellectually you can't see it. And so you read the whole Testament, and you're trying to figure it out, but you can't see what's happening. And then he says, okay, so we got seven miles, so let's start with Genesis, and we'll go all the way through till Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, and I'll explain to you how I'm on every single page good news for us is that the people who started the church in the New Testament had to have all this explicitly explained to them by Jesus. That's the only thing encouraging for us. And so there's, there's one more passage. Let me just share this one real fast. Where Jesus is arguing with these people who are, who are religious scholars on the Old Testament. They, they know it really well. In fact, most of them have, um, in order to be Pharisees, they're supposed to have the first five books of the Bible memorized. Okay? These are people who know the Bible. And Jesus is having this argument with them, and he finally says, listen, guys, you diligently study the Scriptures. He's saying, I will concede to you that nobody studies the Scriptures harder than you do. But you know what? The amount you study the Scriptures actually isn't the most important thing. It's good to study as much as you do. 
But the, the issue here is what you think you're doing, right? He says, you diligently study the scriptures because in your heart, what you really think is you think it's in the scriptures. It's in them that you have life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me, meaning eternal life comes from reading the Bible and seeing that every page of it points to Jesus. He says, your problem is you refuse to come to me to have life. Now, what that means is we, we've got to see Jesus in, in the whole Bible. Now, in order to do that, what we're gonna, here's what we're going to do. For a number of weeks, we're going to go through, and I'm going to try to pick the highlight portions of the Bible so that if you haven't been through the Bible before, in about a year, you'll have hit most of the big passages in most of, the, most of the books of the Bible, and you'll have some sense about how the whole thing goes together, and you'll be acquainted with the Scriptures, and you'll, you'll have learned how to see Jesus through the Scriptures, which will be great. If you've read most of the Bible before, hopefully this will help you put together and see how the whole Bible fits together like you haven't seen before. Now, there's one thing um, we need, I need to do before we, we talk about Genesis 1, and that is, there is an, there's an elephant in the room on Genesis 1, right? And that is the whole question of, what on earth do we do with um, our faith and with science? Are you just going to bypass that? Is that what your sermon's going to be about? Um, what, what on earth, what are we doing on that one? And just give me a couple minutes on this, okay? Um, one, um, we have a blog called Engage and Equip that we—it's designed for our leaders. But anybody can go to it and hope you do use it. And I put up a blog this week with some resources that you can go to um, for that. Um, one of them is about an hour and a half talk my brother did on this for engineering students at UC Davis. He has a PhD in engineering. He just finished an MA in um, ecology and evolution at UC Davis. And he has an MA in theology from Wheaton. And so he kind of lay—he doesn't take a position on how to interpret Genesis and science. He just kind of lays out the framework you have to think inside to figure out what you're going to think. Um, and so that audio for that and the slides and stuff and the talk are on there. Plus there's some other things on there as well that have like three different views interacting with each other. Um, one of the things to recognize though is there's a level to which we all have to recognize that we're all doing kind of an understanding work that isn't all that easy. Now, in Scripture, and, and I, you can get both of these from Psalm 19, for example. Um, Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament declares His handiwork. Um, day and night they pour forth speech. Speech what? Speech about God, right? The natural world pours forth speech about God. The natural world is a revelation from God. Also, there is a particular and specific revelation from God in Jesus Christ, and we get testimony about Jesus Christ primarily through the written scriptures. So the Bible and Christ are God's special revelation. Neither of these are in conflict with each other, Christians believe. Both are true, fully true and trustworthy, and therefore understood properly or not in conflict with each other, okay? Now, in order to understand the natural world, the general revelation, we've developed something called the scientific method. We use the scientific method as an interpretive method to understand the natural revelation as best we can. When we do that, we produce something called scientific synthesis, which is what we normally mean when we use the word science. Science really means doing this. But when we say science, what we normally mean is what we've come up with, what people who do that for a living say, right? And that is a fallible process because human beings are involved, okay? Now, with the Bible— we also do something to understand that it. it's what we call hermeneutics or, or exegesis or interpreting the Bible, 
okay? So there's a, there's a science of how do you interpret texts? How do you do that? What are the linguistic rules? What are the genre rules? What are that kind of thing, right? And that is a science just like this is a science, and it produces something. It produces theology, what we think we can know about God. And when we put our theology and our science together, we get a worldview, how we see the world, okay? Now, here, if, if Bible is, if, if Psalm 19 is right, that the creation pours forth speech, and by the time you get to verse 4, it says, the law of the Lord is beautiful, nourishing the soul, right? The Bible, the Bible is from God. It's a revelation, a special revelation. Natural world is from God. It's a revelation of God's glory. These two are not in conflict. However, when you finally get here and here, do you sometimes have conflict? Yes, right? Yes. What we think we know here and what we think we know here are in conflict with each other. Well, what do we do? Well, we just believe that, right? Well, you, you can do that. That's one way to go. Um, the other thing you can do is you can say, wait a second, I probably screwed up either here or here. So you go back to the methodology and you redo the work. And you come back with this, you come back with this, and you see if there's still conflict. And if there's not, you can proceed to here. Does that make sense? Now, when Christians do this, um, right now, if you read broadly in Christian faith, you get this. Basically, 14 different models for understanding how the two work together. Okay? I'm not going to go through them all right now. Okay? Somebody just clap. Is that Timothy? Okay, so, um, and in each one of these, you're second-guessing something, and you're redoing some kind of work. Okay? Um, in order to be what we call Bible-believing Christians, though, um, one of the things you have to recognize is whatever you do with that, it needs to affirm what's called the authority of Scripture, or in evangelicalism, what we call the inerrancy of the Bible, which in the sort of classic statement on, is from 1980 called the Chicago Statement. J.I. Packer, who was one of the key authors, said, the Scriptures are entirely reliable, without error, in what they seek to assert. That is, the Scriptures are not inerrant in what you interpret them to mean and what you say they mean. The Scriptures are inerrant in what they actually say which we are imperfectly interpreting oftentimes. And God is actually not obligated to support what we say the scriptures say. He's obligated to support and stand behind what they actually mean. Does that make sense? And so when we recognize that, then you can go to different passages and you can say, okay, if there's tension here, you need to go back and second-guess the work you've done. And I'm not saying you need to second-guess your theology all the time. Science is an extremely fallible human endeavor. Anybody who's in science who has any humility at all should be able to tell you that. But so is theology. I've done some stupid things Bible interpreting. And if you read anything in the history of the church, good heavens. The Bible is not really easy to interpret. And the early passages of Genesis can be pretty tough. And so um, the reason why it's important to think about this is Tim Keller wrote this. Because what Keller was interested about, he's like, well, wait, what about people who are here who don't believe in Jesus? Right? They're coming in with a scientific view already. And so what he's saying is, he, he says, listen, you, what you need to realize is Christians disagree on this. We have an intramural debate on how science and faith go together. There's some of us who believe very strongly in a literal six days. Genesis couldn't be clear. The earth isn't very old. And, and that's really important because of when death enters in and what this passage says. And if you're really going to believe in the story of the Bible, you've got to believe this. And then there's other people believe, who believe that there's, there's different kinds of places where there's room to interpret certain things in Genesis that are different than six literal days. And here's how this is used. And so we, there's room for this. And when you put science in here, it fits really well. There's— And what, what Keller says is because that's a little bit intramural— 
don't decide whether or not you're going to take the Jesus message seriously on the basis of any one of those positions. Take Jesus seriously and then figure out how the two revelations work together. And it's probably going to take a good bit of your life to figure out where you are in that. And it may move around over the course of your life. You may be like, oh wait, no, I need to take this into account. Oh wait, no, I took that too much into account. No wait, let's, what about this? And that's not what today is about. One of the things we need to recognize whenever we come to a Bible passage isn't just the questions we want to ask. You know, any Bible passage we want to ask questions. I would love for Genesis to answer all the questions I want it to answer. But the thing is, Genesis is revelation. It's actually giving answers that God wants to give to questions God wants us to ask. What are the questions God wants us to ask? Does that make sense? And there's, an, there's, there's four things that I want to talk about this passage asserting and teaching us that are difficult to, that are important to recognize Jesus in the whole Bible. But the first thing um, to look at is this. What do you, what would we normally think Genesis 1 would do? Right? What would we think Genesis 1 would do? It's the first passage of a really long story, right? Did anybody ever pay attention in literature class? Right? Characterization, right? Characterization. It's going to introduce characters, right? Um, this week, I told my kids that they, we could go see Rise of the Guardians because it was at the Cheap Theater, and that's where we see all our movies. And um, even on dates with my wife. And so um, Jude and I were getting out of his swimming lesson, and we were trying to make it to this 4.30 show, and we weren't going to make it. And so we're driving in the car, and I realized we're going to be about 12 minutes late to get to the theater. And so I, Jude's like, Jude asked me, he said, are you, are we going to be late, Daddy? I was like, yeah, we're going to be a little bit late. He said, well, how much? And I said, well, about, probably about 12 minutes. And he said, well, Daddy, um, how long's the movie? I said, I don't know, about two hours maybe, I'm not sure. And he's like, and we're only going to be 12 minutes late? I said, yep. He's like, oh, that's fine. Right? Because in a five-year-old's mind, it's just about quantity, right? There's two hours, there's 12 minutes, we're good. Okay? We're good. But what am I thinking? Right? This poor kid isn't going to understand anything that happens. Right? Like, a couple of weeks ago, Alexa and I managed to get a date night, and we went to go see Skyfall, the James Bond movie, right? And um, I was terrified to be five seconds late to that movie. Because spy movies, like, the first scene is, here's this, where's the money? Boom, you get shot, that guy walks away, and if you didn't see that, you're done. Right? I mean, there's no way to recover from that. You mean you got to pull out your phone and like look up reviews with spoiler alerts just to catch up, right? And so characterization is really important, and often early characterizations in any good story is really important to get. And if you don't get that, you're not going to make it in the story. And Francis Schaeffer said years ago, he said, listen, you take away Genesis 1 through 3, and there's no way to make sense of the Bible. It sets up everything in the story. And if you lose that, you're toast. It has all the important events and characterizations that set up the drama for the whole rest of the thing. And so there's four things I want to go over. Um, because the main character focused on in Genesis 1 is God. There's three main characters characterized. God, human beings, and the creation. Those are, and those are going to be the three things that are the focus of the end of the story. You get to Revelation, what's the focus of the end of the story? The king comes back to redeem his creation and people. Same three characters. Right? And so, here's how we— Next week we're going to do characterization of human beings and creation. This week we're going to do characterization of God. 
The first is that the creator is absolute in power and sovereignty. Sovereignty is rulership. It's absolute. Um, and this is not—I don't have to argue for this very much, right? I mean, th- this is a situation—if you look at the myths of the ancient world, the creation myths that came about, were written down about the same time as the Bible— um, it's like there, there are these stories where like one god kills this woman god and like tears out her womb and throws it into the vacuum of space and it's inert fertility even in her dead state creates a world that grows and you get the earth and like or like um, in the, the Babylonian myth like these kid gods kill their dad and like his corpse beca- like it, that's what the creation myths are like and in, in this creation narrative God just says, let's have some light. Just speaks, that's it, right? It reminds me of, um, I don't know if you want to, if you, if you, but it reminds me of the Iron Man movies. You know the Iron Man movies where like Tony Stark has that computer and the stuff comes up and he's just like moving stuff around, right? Like I wish, I wish they had one of those for kids where like you could like take your kid and you could pull out the rebelliousness and you could take the this and you could put in the being nice and please and and there, you know, it would just, you get one of those 3D printers and boom, there you go. You know, <laughs> you're good, you know. And, but you know, this is like without even the hands, it's like, let's have some light. Okay, we'll have split up the light in the darkness. Let's get a border around that. It's fran- okay, I like it. I like it. It's good, right? I mean, it's just, that's it. Like, and the boom, universe, right? There's this, this sense of just like effortlessness in the creator. He just says, Let's, let's have some light. Okay, there it is. And boom. And the reason why that's important is because a lot of Christians believe the most fundamental distinction in Christian faith is the, is the saved-unsaved distinction, right? Are you saved or are you unsaved? Do you know Jesus or don't you know Jesus? Are you forgiven of your sins or are you not forgiven of your sins? What's your relatedness to God? But, but that, that is, that's, a very, that's the most important distinction for you probably. But fundamentally, in relationship to reality, the most important distinction is the creator-creature distinction, or the creator-creation distinction. Are you the sort of being that creates and is, un- and is uncreated, or are you the kind of being that sub-creates and is a creation? And what does that mean in terms of your standing? You see, in most of the religions that purport to be Christian that aren't really, and I won't name names right now, but they actually fail on this point. That you push them long enough about Jesus, and they ultimately will admit that Jesus is a created being, not the uncreated God. And that is the difference between a Christian faith and completely not Christian faith. Because of that distinction. And you see, the distinction of whether or not you should believe in and follow Jesus is a really important distinction. But you probably won't ever take it seriously enough until you wake up and realize where you exist in the creator-creation distinction. In that sense, the creator-creation distinction is first. Who are we dealing with, really? We're dealing with a creator who's absolutely sovereign and powerful. But we're also dealing with a creator that's absolutely good, creative, and wholesome. One of the focuses of this passage, you probably heard it a number of times, and God saw that it was good, and God said that it was good, right? There's this pattern where God makes something, he evaluates it, and then he names it. Let's have some light. Light is good. Let's call it day, right? There's this this pattern 
where he creates something, it's good, it's wholesome, it's complete, and it's creative. And then he affirms it, and then he names it. Now that's really, it's really interesting in parallel to humanity because he's then going to give that job to human beings in lesser things. He's going to put us, give us a job of creating, judging, and naming things, right? And by the time you get to chapter two, Adam's naming animals, right? He doesn't get to name light though, right? Now, the reason that that's important is because of how we deal with the the issue in question of evil, you see, in most of the stories of humanity, they, want to, they believe spiritually that there are two gods. There's the good God and there's the evil God, and both are creative, and both are acting, and both are— and there's a battle between the two, and you better pick a side, and some believe that ultimately the good side's going to win, and then some believe ultimately the bad side's going to win, right? The Norse believe in that. I'm going to go die with Odin. He's the, good, he's the better God, but the trolls are going to kill us in the end, right? But we've got to be noble and fight hard. Actually, that's a pretty good myth, right? I mean, I'd rather have that one than the other dumb ones. But— um, but you see, in the, in the Christian story, evil is not present at this point. Right? The, the issue is, is that God has created, created something that's creative, it's beautiful, it's good, and it's completely wholesome. And so when evil enters in later, we've got to recognize that this is not part of God's intention of creation and not part of what he declared good. Um, a really good example of this is actually in the movie— Okay, did this stop working? It's actually in the movie um, Rise of the Guardians. There's the character of the Sandman, right? The guy who gives dreams, right? He's one of the Guardians. And so he has this kind of like magic sand where literally he like gives dreams to all the kids in the world, right? And the bad guy is this guy named Pitch, Pitch Black, right? He's the boogeyman. And um, he actually has no ability to create anything. And so in the movie, what he does to create his like sort of minions is he goes into this girl's dream where she's dreaming about riding a unicorn, and he takes this, like, beautiful horse of bright sand, right? The dream, the pure dream, and he corrupts it into a nightmare, right? This black horse that's going to wreak havoc. See, he doesn't create anything. He takes something that's good and wholesome and right, and then he infects and deprives and twists and bends it into something that has all of its, all of its life properties are from when it was good, but now it's being used for evil purposes. It's a deprivation of a good creation. And you see, that's the Christian view of evil. And it's necessary to understand the, for the goodness of God, for the evilness of evil, because evil now is not just rebellion against God. It's theft from God, and it's taking something that belongs to God and twisting it. It's bad enough. It's bad enough to make something evil in the darkness. It's ten times worse to go and take something good that God made and twist it. And then now think how objectionable it is when something God creates in his own image is taken, broken, twisted, and used to the service of evil. And once you realize that, once you realize that we're talking about the sovereign creator, and you're talking about his good, wholesome, and beautiful creation— and his passion for it. And then there's the crowning of it. And then that part of it rebels, is broken, is twisted. You can begin to get a sense of the significance of evil. Sin, death, hatred, brokenness. That's going to dominate the rest of the story. Third is 
that God, the Creator glorifies Himself by revealing Himself. If you, if you've looked in your book for the first week, there's this point where the, the author says, and I'm not sure he explains it all that well, but he says, God glorifies Himself, wants to glorify Himself by creating humans. That's true. But the word glorify isn't in Genesis 1, and so it's really easy to read that and be like, okay, you're pulling in your glorify theology from somewhere because it's not really in this passage. But you see, the issue in Genesis 1 is God is revealing Himself. God is making himself known. God is creating a creation that will pour forth speech about himself, and then he's going to create human beings that bear his image. God is making himself known. Well, why is God making himself known? What's the point of that? Well, revelation demonstrates God's character. God's character is his glory, his beauty. It allows, it creates, it creates beings that can see and reflect who he really is. And so when God creates human beings, he's creating, he's creating creatures that can both be receptors of God's glory, they can see it and enjoy it, and reflectors of God's glory, they can radiate it out. And human beings are special in both of those ways. We're not just special because we bear and can reflect out God's image. We're special because in bearing God's image, we have the capacity to see his glory, his beauty, and see God for who he really is in a much more distinct way than the rest of creation. And therefore, we have a much greater responsibility to live it out than the rest of creation. What that also means is that we also have, human beings also have the potential to reject and conceal God's glory like nothing else. But we're going to talk about that week three. So lastly, seeing Jesus on every page. God displays himself supremely in Jesus Christ as both creator and human. True humanity. You see, in this passage is creation— and true humanity. And Scripture teaches that both of these point to Jesus. Jesus is the true creator, and he is the true human. We'll talk about Jesus as a true human next week. But look at this passage in Colossians, right? He's talking about Jesus. He is Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, right? The image, the seeable portrayal of the God who is invisible, the firstborn over all creation. Now, before you get thrown by that word firstborn, pay attention to the upcoming preposition, for, right? So this is, this is going to explain what it means that Jesus is the firstborn, right? For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and indivisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So does it sound like he was the first created thing? That that's what firstborn means? No. See, firstborn is the person who gets the inheritance, right? Who, who gets to become king next? The firstborn, right? The position of firstborn, it means the exact same thing as son in the Bible. Jesus is the son of God. He is the heir. He is the, direct, he is the direct owner. He is the one. And because when you move on to the next passage, he becomes the firstborn from among the dead. That is true human. So before he's the firstborn over all creation, that is he is the owner, the maker, the creator. He is, he is true creator. All creation points and owes itself to Jesus. 
right? And then he's the firstborn from among the dead. He is the first of true redeemed humanity. He is human as human was meant to be. He is the God-man. He's the one who, if we look to see what human beings could have been and what they will be, ultimately, that is embodied in Jesus, the crucified Savior. He saves us, but on another level, he is us as we were meant to be. He's the first time, in some ways, we get to see the image of God the way it was meant to be. We never got to meet Adam before the fall. Think about it. You and I—I don't know if this has ever occurred to you—you and I have never seen humanity the way it was meant to be. We've never tasted it. We've never touched it. We've never been around it. The sweetest relationship, the sweetest fellowship, the sweetest community, the sweetest journey you've ever been on with any human being, you have not yet tasted what humanity was meant to be, what humans were meant to be. You've never seen it in yourself or in anybody else. You would just see glimpses of it in God's redemption of us. We see things that are closer and further away. It has something of a relationship to it. The image of God is being restored, but there's only one who has lived out the image of God and is therefore the firstborn from among the dead and true humanity from all ages before to all ages hence, and that is Jesus. The true creator and true creation. You see this in John's gospel too. The first thing, the things that happen on day one. When John decides what he's going to say about the life and death of Jesus, the man from Nazareth in the first century, he doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. In fact, one of the funny things about John's gospel, there's no birth narrative. Isn't that funny? You're telling a story about Jesus, there's no birth narrative. There is a birth narrative for all the stuff Jesus relates to. Because <laughs> Jesus was never born, and John, John says, no, go all the way back in the beginning— Here's my birth narrative. I'm not going to talk about Jesus' birth. I'm going to talk about the birth of everything else. So go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. God's spoken Word. His power, His will. He spoke it into being. There was this Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, right? Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that's been made. In Him was life, and that life was the what? The light of men, right? The first thing He created. John pulls it all the way back and says, light. You know light? God created light, and then later He gave the true light. To the point where when you move on into 2 Corinthians, Paul makes the same argument. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said— let the light shine out of darkness, which is a paraphrase of Genesis 1, right? It's the separating of darkness. The light shines over it. Let light shine out of the darkness. He says, the same God who said that made his light shine in our hearts to give us what? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So wait, is God glorifying himself in creation? Yeah, he totally is. He's causing the same one that created light itself, created the light that is the knowledge of the glory of God. And how do we access the knowledge of the glory of God, the light of creation, in the one true human, in the face of Christ? True creator and true creation, beginning and end. The, the main character of the entire story. And there's two things that we can end with. The first is, 
whether you're a Christian or not, do you, do you know who you're dealing with? You see, it's very easy to think of Jesus as some kind of first century sage or some guy who rambled off some nice things, a, a good moral teacher whose morals we don't think are good, that kind of thing. You can think of Jesus that sort of thing. He, he's sort of like this sort of dead prophet from the first century that might have risen from the dead and that might have some significance for you. What this book says, what the Bible actually teaches, is that, that Jesus is the incarnate, that is infleshed, eternal creator God who started the story of reality that we're in. And we can't understand ourselves and we cannot understand the story that we find ourselves in, and we can't understand, well, most things as they really, really are without knowing that. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might be like, okay, now you're just intellectually bullying me. No, I'm not. What I'm saying is, it's one or the other. It's not something in between. If you're deciding about Jesus, you can believe that's all false, right? The question, empirical question of whether this is true or false is beside the point. The, the, the question is, what's the claim before we decide whether it's true or false? The claim isn't, Jesus can be your special friend. That's not what we're selling. The claim is, there is one who by his word can create physics complex enough that we're still speculating about how it actually works. In that one, has intended for there to be a creation that he ultimately chose to redeem and has called you to be part of it. You belong to him. You always have. Will you respond to and belong to him willfully through faith? Or won't you? That's the claim. It's true or false. A bunch of us think it's true. And we're trying to live it out. But the way, no matter how you slice it, you got to know what the question is, even if you're, you don't have an answer yet. And the second thing is this. Genesis 1 is all of grace. Do you realize that? I didn't really think about that till this week. You see, we talk about later on when Jesus dies for us, it's all of grace, meaning grace is just favor. It's what you don't deserve it. There's, you have no claim to it, but it's given to you. Right? That which you receive, which you have no claim to, it's just the generosity of the other person. You know, God, God, why does God love us? Because he's loving, not because we're lovely, right? Salvation and creation come from the exact same place, grace. Right? Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be terrible if your kid came to you one day and said, my whole life I've just been living for your approval? Wouldn't that be a terrible thing for your kid to say to you? Right? I've just been living for your approval. I, I thought you wanted me to be this, and I've just been trying to be that my whole life, and I just don't think I—I I, I know I've been disappointing you. It'd be terrifying for you, right? Why? Because you didn't give your kid life so that they can earn it. You didn't, you didn't give the gift of life and nurture a human being so that they could earn that gift back from you. If, if you did, you're a horrible parent. Come on, we'll pray for you. We can all repent together, right, after the service and, and turn, our, turn around. But you give life because you give life. Women bear children at great cost to their own bodies and time and sleeplessness. Not so their, their kid can ultimately earn it back because they want—they give life. They give it freely. Creation is a free gift of grace. You exist because God willed that you existed, because he creates. Not because you earned creation or would earn creation. And if you can get the concept— that you exist because of God's free grace, 
you could understand the concept that you are saved by God's free grace in such a way that you would really believe it and the fear would be gone and the pride would be gone and the thankfulness and the joy that comes from knowing that you are freely saved by faith and trust in Jesus Christ just as he created you out of grace he saved you out of grace and all you can do is live in light of it out of thankfulness and hope and out of a desire to be part of the story he's writing as king within his kingdom for the redemption of as many as possible for the ultimate hope of his return. And if you can see creation is out of grace, you could see redemption is out of grace. And that's not just for people who don't believe in Jesus. That's the gospel for people who do. Every human has the hardest time believing in the free, favor-filled, compassionate grace, generosity of God. Just keep going back to earning it and just go back to how silly it is to try to earn your creation. And you'll somehow see how silly it is to try to earn your salvation. The result of that would be if you can see Jesus in creation, you can already start to put things in place to put them in the box and put them aside and be free. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for your love and your creative work. We thank you that we can put our trust in you as the creator. We pray that you'd help us as people to be as faithful as we can be in understanding the scriptures in, related, in relationship to how you've created and the finer points of what you teach in Genesis 1, and 2, and 3. And um, help us to be that as a community, people who do that theology and synthesizing right. But mainly, Father, help us to embrace the clear answers to the questions you've called us to ask and to recognize who we're dealing with that creator-creation distinction, and to recognize you are that creator, and that just as you created us by grace, you've saved us by grace. I pray that every person here would be able to walk out with some level of additional comfort, joy, and hope, and thankfulness, or at least a feeling of the potential of that if they believed, because of what you've spoken in the scriptures and done in history. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.